This is not a drill. I repeat, this is not a drill. Drop your donut and go. I'm Danielle Yet, and you're listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies, which is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto. We're gathering friends and members of our ICS community here on this podcast to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We hope Critical Faith gives you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS. Every semester, the CPRSE hosts a Scripture, Faith, and Scholarship Symposium where we invite scholars and other thoughtful Christians to share with the ICS community how their faith, research, and practice inform one another. This past January, Dr. Matthew Kamink spoke at the symposium after receiving Redeemer University's Emerging Public Intellectual Award. Dr. Kamink teaches, among other things, theology and ethics at Fuller Seminary in Texas, and his research interests touch on Christian public life and contemporary Muslim immigration. He also recently published a book on the topic, which provided the backdrop for our symposium. The book is called Christian Hospitality and Muslim Immigration in an Age of Fear. We recorded Dr. Kamink's symposium presentation, and we're sharing it with you for today's episode. Dr. Kamink was interviewed by Hector Acero of the CPRSE, and responded to some questions after his presentation. We've made this a bit of a longer episode, so we can include people's questions, which I'll jump in to paraphrase when the time comes. But now, I'll turn things over to Hector and Dr. Kamink. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for coming. Uh, we're happy to see that many more people than what we've expected uh, are here. Uh, this promises to be a very interesting, engaging conversation. And we, we were just driving from Hamilton, so I had an hour and 30 minutes of very invigorating conversation. So I'm sure this is going to be a continuation of that. So um, we want to thank uh, Dr. Matthew Kaming for, uh, for coming here and being with us today. Um, he is the Associate Dean and Assistant Professor of Christian Ethics at Fuller Theological Seminar. He was yesterday in Hamilton receiving the uh, Emerging Public Intellectual Award there, um, so in, at Redeemer University College. And uh, he's 
he's um, graciously agreed to to be with us today uh, on his way out of uh, of Ontario um, just to have a conversation with us. Um, so keep that in mind. And I'll um, give you maybe a, a bit of an outline of what will happen this afternoon. Um, we'll hear uh, from Dr. Keming um, just an introduction, uh, a bit of an uh, overview of his most recent work, and maybe some things that keep him up at night. Our starting point. <laughs> then after that, we'll, we'll transition into a seminar discussion. I, I'll ask maybe some introductory questions, and then after that, we'll open the floor for everybody to, to be able to contribute and, and interact. So thank you very much. Well, thank you very much for having me. Um, as a, as a young 20-year-old uh, who came upon the work of Abraham Kuyper and Reformation theology and philosophy and public theology, um, the um, scholars of ICS would regularly come up in my reading list. Um, and so it, it means a lot to me to be here today. Um, finally, my first, my first time in Ontario, my first time here at ICS. So um, voices like Les Eidervart and Cal Seerfeld Herman Doyevert and all of those um, were a big formative influence on me when I was a, a young scholar. So wonderful to be here. And um, thank you so much for coming. Um, so I wanted to just briefly introduce a little bit um, of what I worked on in this book. This came out of a dissertation that I did between Fuller Theological Seminary and the Free University of Amsterdam a research project that was supported by uh, a Fulbright scholarship to spend time in the Netherlands studying the conflict over Muslim immigration in Europe broadly, um, but specifically in the Netherlands. And as an American citizen, uh, the chief impetus for me was trying to understand what is a Christian response to um, the heated debate within the West over Muslim immigration, specifically around the questions of political ethics, public ethics, um, not so much focused on um, individual one-to-one -one friendships between Christians and Muslims, but more in terms of the public and political issues involved. Um, and a large part of my thinking um, there had to do with and the fact that Europe has had a much longer track record of debating these issues of Muslim immigration. It's a relatively new fight in the United States. Um, so after World War II, um, European economies were, um, were growing and were in need of cheap labor and began uh, a variety of guest worker programs whereby they would invite uh, Muslim immigrants from North Africa and the Middle East to come and work in their factories and their restaurants and things like this to cover jobs that Europeans do not want to do. Um, however, the posture was always having them as guest workers with an emphasis on guest. They would stay for a short period of time and the hope was that eventually they would go back. Um, and um, over time, that relationship needed to change. A variety of debates and battles started to emerge and come into the public square in the 1990s and became particularly heated after 9-11 and a series of heated debates and conflicts um, following terrorist attacks in Madrid and in England, um, fights over the Salman Rushdie novel and, and others. I won't bore you with all the fights, but basically every time a bomb is dropped or a cartoonist write, writes something or um, some sort of terrorist attack happens, um, 
these debates over Muslim immigration flare up. And they're extremely complex, involving issues of terrorism and security, gender rights, um, racism, um, sex, free speech. And so uh, as a Christian ethicist, the complexity of the debate over Muslim immigration is exciting and terrifying all at the same time. So trying to wrestle with what does it mean to be a faithful Christian disciple uh, amidst this sort of cacophonous debate over Muslim immigration and what we mean particularly when we talk about the language of integration. What does it mean for a Muslim immigrant to integrate into a Western society or to become truly French or truly Dutch or truly American or Canadian? What does it mean to integrate into these societies? So um, these are all sort of the questions that I was wrestling with. And then on top of that, I was a part of this reformed tradition of public theology, this sort of line of Abraham Kuyper and Herman Doyeverd and others who talked about this tradition of principled pluralism, whereby unique religions and unique ideologies could each have their own institutions, um, Christian and Muslim schools or newspapers or political parties. Um, and this tradition of reformed public theology developed in the Netherlands 150 years ago as a way of trying to make sense of how mid-Dutch society um, between Catholics and Protestants and socialists and liberals could live and work together in this sort of just and diverse public square. And that tradition provided me with a lot of resources for wrestling with what does it mean for me as a Christian to defend uh, Muslim institutions and Muslim speech and Muslim presence within the public square. It gave me a lot of resources. Um, but there's something new within this debate. There's something different about this moment than what was for Abraham Kuyper and others 150 years ago. Uh, there are many things that are different, but one is simply that this theology developed within a society that was culturally cohesive. So it was a bunch of white people trying to figure out how to work together, right? It was uh, Dutch socialists and Dutch Catholics and Dutch Calvinists all trying to figure out how to share power. They shared a common culture. They shared a common language. Um, and it was a relatively stable and calm society. And um, what we have here in this moment is um, the rapid, what I would call the rapid globalization of difference, in which difference to, in the 21st century is moving faster than it ever has before. It's deeper, it's more complex. And so it's not quite as stable and calm as those early reformed public theologians were trying to wrestle with. The kinds of differences that we navigate on a daily basis um, make our heads spin. And they're not, we don't have an opportunity to sit back and intellectually reflect on the differences we're encountering, right? They just keep coming. I'm looking around the room and you're each introducing yourself and you look quite different from one another, right? And I'm having to navigate these differences. And if we were to hear more of your stories, Right, very unique stories right here in this room. And, um, and that's what it means to be a citizen of a city like Toronto or a city like Amsterdam or New York today. 
So the questions of Christian citizenship in these diverse cities uh, is what fascinates me as an ethicist. Um, so very briefly, um, the two major responses with which you are, I'm sure, quite um, familiar with, um, the two major voices uh, responding to Muslim immigrants, we could very sloppily say are those on the right and the left. Um, on the right, um, these voices will frame Muslims as largely a threat in terms of a threat to national security, a threat to national culture, a threat to our way of life or our religion. And so they're a threat. Muslims represent a threat that needs to be dealt with um, with strength and resolve and cohesion and a desire for a more hard assimilation. And we can see these voices popping up in, in Belgium and in France and in Austria and England. Um, and then on the other side, we could call this the, the left side, would be uh, a more um, posture of openness, of a, a desire for tolerance, a lot of language around multiculturalism. Um, this side, um, on the other hand, can take on a more paternalistic posture towards um, Muslim immigrants. So rather than framing Muslims in terms of as a threat to us, you frame the Muslim immigrants in terms of their need. They need us. So they need our empowerment. They need our education. They need our, our enlightenment. Um, we need to liberate them. Um, and so we need to softly encourage them. And the key here is actually that on both sides of the European debate, um, the goal is, is common. It is to find a way for the government to solve the problem of Islam or the question of Islam. One uses a stick, the other uses a carrot. And they fight with one another quite vociferously, but in large part the assumption is the same, is that Islam represents a question or a problem to be solved. One will do it through uh, uh, governmental care, and the other will do it more through governmental force. But pluralism, that deep difference, is, is an unsettling experience that causes us to bring our shoulders up and causes us to ask, what can we do to resolve this? Um, and so what this book represents is an attempt to develop a Christian alternative to thinking about these things, drawing on the resources of reformed public theology and that tradition, but also recognizing the ways in which the tradition doesn't, doesn't fully help us um, respond to the speed and complexity of the issue. And so there's so much more to be said, but I, I kind of wanted to set that up and, and hope that we could um, uh, engage in a, in a conversation about that. There are, um, one of the things that Hector and I discussed on the ride over here was the language of hospitality. And um, what we mean when we say um, Christian hospitality towards Muslim immigrants. Because there is, um, first of all, what I would argue in, in the book is that it's core to the nature and mission of God is that of, that of space making. The act of creation itself is a space making endeavor, right, that God, God did not need to make space for creation, but, but did that. And the cross, the core of the cross, is in, is in and of itself a space-making endeavor, a very painful and sacrificial space-making endeavor there in the cross. 
So we see that as the heart of who God is, to make space um, for others, even at great pain and sacrifice to oneself. So it's not a sort of romantic space-making endeavor. Um, it, it takes the cost of making space seriously. But the, there's a danger to hospitality language that I wanted to name here before we got started, and that has to do with the danger of seeing ourselves, and I'll just say white Westerners, as perpetually the host and the Muslim as perpetually the guest, whereby they exist by our benevolent um, invitation, and uh, we get to set the table for those newcomers that come. So um, that's one thing I wanted to sort of flag for all of you. And the other is um, I'd love to have a discussion about the language of integration and assimilation and what we mean about that, um, because there's a, there's a lot. Thank you very much. Perhaps the, the first question to get us thinking about these issues a bit more, you, you mentioned uh, near the end that uh, there are some resources of the tradition that you've identified that are helpful to deal with the issues now. Um, are there <clears throat> a couple of examples that, that could get us started? To, uh, that, that, also, that are translatable in North America, because yeah. it might not be the same as what is happening in Europe right now. Especially the Canadian situation has some nuances that are making it even more, more, sim more different from the European than the, than the American. So I would say um, one resource that I found particularly helpful from the historic reform tradition has to do with Abraham Kuyper's response to early liberal attempts of assimilation. Um, so um, understanding Abraham Kuyper's small movement of uh, small Christian political movement in the Netherlands is as resistance to um, an assimilation campaign, whereby um, modern liberals were attempting to assimilate Catholic minorities and Calvinist minorities into a modern liberal whole, whereby um, you would take young children of Catholic or Calvinist faith and run them through the machinery of a, a modernistic school system and assimilate them into the new Netherlands, which would be this modern uniform whole. And if we could get rid of these sort of backwards religious communities, we could bring the Netherlands into the 20th century, and we could be an economic and scientific and democratic unified nation, and we could join the big countries of Germany and France and England. Um, and so one way of understanding Abraham Kuyper is a theological and political resistance to assimilation. And the argument he makes is that the modern liberal attempt to assimilate religious minorities into it will consistently fail because modernity misunderstands three core aspects to what faith is and how faith works. It has this optimistic belief that it can assimilate these minority faiths, and it's because it misunderstands three aspects of faith. The first is that faith is public. Um, it's always going to be coming out, um, and so there's no way to privatize it. 
um, the attempts of liberal modernity to privatize faith will consistently fail because um, Catholics, Muslims, Jews are always going to, they, they can't shed this faith. They can't pretend that it doesn't exist. It's always going to form and impact them. The second aspect is that he argues faith is pervasive, which means we all have faith. Um, and so he would, he would have a lot of fun sort of exposing that modern liberalism itself is a faith. Itself has certain convictions that it holds to. It is not... Um, it has not transcended the faiths and become this morally neutral hierarchy whereby it can sort of adjudicate these backwards faiths below it. Um, but he says uh, modern liberalism is one faith amongst many, and we're all down here on the same level. You have not transcended faith. You are one of us. Faith is a pervasive aspect of the human condition. We are prone to bow. We are we are worshiping beings, in a basic sort of Augustinian sense. Um, and the last would be that faith is pluriform, meaning that um, the faiths of the human condition will never agree. There's deep differences between our faiths, and there will always be that clash. Um, and there is no human mechanism that can bring these faiths together. There's no governmental power there's no corporation, there's no school system that can cause human beings to come together in their worship. So there's, there's always going to be these divisions, they're always going to be public, and there's no way to transcend our faith. And so that, that resource I find particularly helpful from 150 years ago to this moment today as I look at different European efforts to um, assimilate or integrate Muslim, um, Muslim immigrants into a sort of modern, modern liberal whole. Um, it's, it's helpful when you're sort of analyzing what's happening in France or Germany, uh, wherever that is. Those three sort of core things, faith is public, pluriform, and pervasive. Um, so that's one example. Maybe just uh, a second question before we open it up to others, um, touching on that, uh, the issue of integration. And for the past um, maybe three or four years, we've been uh, collaborating with the Center for Community-Based Research and a research project on faith and settlement partnerships. So um, understanding how uh, faith organizations and government-based or government-funded organizations come together in the settlement or integration of refugees in, in Canada. And one of, um, kind of our learnings in the process is this um, concept of culturally meaningful integration. Um, and it emerges out of um, Muslim groups that, are, that have been in Canada for a longer time that help newcomers um, navigate that difficulty of, of being, uh, being Muslim in Canada as opposed to in a Muslim-majority country. Um, and there is another level to that, which um, is connected to something you, you said uh, as well, is it, it is it is impossible to pretend that the faith is not public, that is not there, but the responses of, of this, these groups that work on this is that uh, it is easier for some to pretend than for others. And for us as Muslims, it is very difficult because there are so many outward expressions that accompany us all the time. 
a bit more about the cultural meaningful integration is is really a process of like working with the refugees in in their first few years here to perhaps teach them ways to uh, to remain Muslim, to be able to uh, maintain the public aspect of their faith um, in the new context. It works different in Quebec than in the rest of Canada, but that's we've we've seen the English-speaking part, and and that's been our learning. And where it, wherever it is applied, it it practically has um, very positive outcomes in, in the larger community. So, is there anything like that you've seen? Is there are there any insights about that? Well, I think there's two things I'd love to say. One is the, the importance of strong and healthy Muslim institutions that are free and safe uh, and flourishing are absolutely critical to the, the health and growth of, of Islam in the West. So the flourishing of Muslim schools and mosques and organizations and youth centers are really important for a variety of reasons. One is simply just the flourishing of the community and the faith, uh, its sense of stability and safety. And then also just simply security experts would tell you that what, what frightens them is not mosques or Muslim organizations or Muslim schools, but are detached young Muslim men who are disaffected, unemployed, discriminated against, and sort of atomized and individualized. Um, because um, that is the demographic that can be picked up by um, radical elements of online Islam. Um, so, once again, this, is, this goes back to the importance of the flourishing of, and freedom of Muslim institutions. Uh, the other thing I would say has to do with the publicness of Islam. And I, I wrote um, a year or two ago a short article for Comment Magazine with CARDIS, this uh, organization in Hamilton, Ontario. Um, and it was specifically about the headscarf as a public symbol of Islam in the West and the power of that, that symbol and its presence within our communities and the ways in which that symbol functions. Um, it's been a bit of a, a lightning rod when it comes to debates about Muslim immigration. The, heads, the headscarf is often coming up, right? Can you wear a headscarf or you know, a niqab when you're having your driver's license taken? Can you wear a headscarf and serve as a judge? Um, can you wear a headscarf in a school? So there's all kinds of unique and interesting debates in France and Germany, England. I believe there's one here in Quebec right now. Can you wear, you know, a burqa on a bus? And lots of fascinating uh, debates about this. But I wrote this article uh, in comment specifically um, saying why I, as a Christian citizen, give thanks for headscarves in my community. Um, why I am thankful for it, and why I consider it a gift to Western democracy. And the reason for it is not because I, you know, as a, as a Christian theologian, think that headscarves are honoring to God in some way, um, but it has to do with um, the way in which a headscarf publicly contests uh, assimilation, it publicly contests uh, secularism, it publicly contests uh, accepted notions of sexuality and fashion, and um, it reminds us that we are not one, that we are not the same. And it, it contests our own, the ways in which we bring our faith into the public square. It's, it, it asks us questions. Whether this woman in the grocery store intends to do any of this or not, right? 
it causes the other citizens in the grocery store to take a moment and reflect uh, on questions of consumerism and sexuality, um, democracy, religion, the public square, in and of itself is a civic action that causes reflection on what it means to be a citizen within the plural public square. And so I, I gave thanks for that, the publicness of faith. And it causes me as a Christian to ask myself, uh, how am I privatizing my faith out of an attempt to fit in? It also causes me to reflect on my own um, privilege as a white Christian male in Texas, of all places, right? That's a pretty good trifecta there. How is it that I am more fearful than this woman who is on the other side of privilege in a variety of ways? And so it, it contests my own sense of citizenship and responsibility in a plural public square. And so, um, yeah, the publicness of Islam is something to, to reflect on, I think. Now, open the floor for, for questions, comments. There seems to be a potential danger in overreading today's idea of secularity onto the 19th century. Even though there is a liberal campaign for secularization at play when Kuiper is writing, Dutch Calvinists nonetheless make up a large part of the population at the time. If, today, we want to avoid a similar kind of triumphalism that underlay the Kuiperian thought of the 19th century, do we need to be critical about what we take up from Kuiper's proposals for pluralism in today's secular societies and how we take them up? Oh, no, I, I think there is plenty within Kuiper that we don't want to take with us. No, yeah, I think that um, I'm very selective um, in what I take from Kuiper uh, on these questions. But I think that um, his particular insights into liberal modernity and um, the dangers of political ambitions for hegemony and uniformity are particularly helpful and insightful. Um, but yes, there's a long list of things that I, from Abraham Kuyper, that I do not include for a variety of reasons. Yeah, I think that's important to name. Global mass migration, as an occasion to think about what it means to be European, for example, is not a new phenomenon. But whatever we mean by whiteness today is a more recent construct than we'd often like to admit. So how important is a reflection on race in the kind of work you're doing? I think it's important. I'm a big fan of Willie Jennings and his book, Christian Imagination. I think it's critically important. Um, and I think probably that one of the best criticisms that you could give of the book that I have here is that it's really focused on religious diversity and handling that and not as focused on race. And so this book needs something like um, to be paired with something like Willie Jennings and others because the, the racial aspect um, to, to the debate over Muslim immigration is really important. That would make this much longer. <laughs> uh, it would also um, be difficult simply because Islam uh, is a racially complex global religion as well. And so you know there are sub-Saharan African Muslims, North Middle Eastern, the largest Muslim nation in the world is actually Indonesia, which is nowhere near the Middle East. And so, yeah, race is absolutely a really important thing. But I think also what you're saying is um, a need for reflection on whiteness and, uh, and what that means as well. In your previous talk at Redeemer University, you discussed how the notion of Christ as king becomes personalized in Christian hospitality. Could you say something more about that? 
Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about Jesus. It's a Christian school, Institute for Christian Studies. <laughs> Christ should have something to do with this. Um, so at the, the core of the book, I have a, a chapter on Christology and pluralism. And um, historically within the Reformed tradition, the emphasis has really been on the crown of Christ and of Christ's sovereignty. And so the case that Kuiper makes for um, why we should make space for different religions and ideologies is because Christ alone is king. Christ alone is sovereign, not Christians, not the church. There's a distinction made there. And so the uses of Christ's kingship, Christ's crown, Christ's sovereignty as the primary Christological lens through which he tries to talk about what would be a Christian response to this book, this book. Um, which I, I affirm in the book, um, and I find extremely helpful in a variety of ways. Um, however, um, um, there is more to Christ than his kingship. Christ is also um, described as a servant, as a friend, as a brother, as uh, a priest, as a sacrifice. Um, Christ also wears a crown of thorns. And so... What I encourage in that chapter is for us to explore other aspects of Christ's character, or using um, another theologian, Herman Bovink, who talks about Christ as prophet, priest, and king. So Christ calls us into a, a, minist a prophetic ministry, uh, a ministry of truth-telling, of exposure, of shedding light on darkness. So when it comes to this issue of Muslim immigration, there is a prophetic call as well to speak truth against Islamophobia, right? Against the politics of fear. There's a prophetic ministry that needs to happen. There's also the priestly nature of interceding, of uh, ministry of reconciliation. That's also core to what it means to follow Christ into, um, into this public debate. And so what the Reformed tradition has been very good at is speaking about law and legal structures and um, organizations and their public and political integrity and constitutionality. And, um, but in terms of the sacrificial ministry of reconciliation and the prophetic call to public and political witness and activism, um, those are also really cr And then finally, simply, the priesthood of all believers, that all Christian citizens have a role to play, not simply uh, Christian politicians and political activists, but here in Toronto, there are Christians working alongside Muslims in hospitals, in businesses, um, in schools, and um, this plurality is not simply a political program, um, that you vote once a year, and you're a pluralist once a year when you vote, but you're actually a pluralist in your daily life, in your vocation. As you teach Muslim students, or you care for Muslim patients, or you represent them in court. Um, and so the call of Christ is more complex. I'm trying to, in the book, um, as we talked about the complexity of the issue, right? we need a more complex Christology. Because the crown alone as a lens can't help me in, in the hospital in the same way that it helps me think about the structures of law, 
And so um, one scholar of John Calvin, um, I was reading him, and he, he described Calvin's Christology as kaleidoscopic. And that word kaleidoscopic just kind of haunted me and drew me into this discussion that for John Calvin, Christ is has each of those different functions of, of friend and liberator and servant and prophet and priest and king. And so part of what I'm trying to do there in that chapter is cultivate a more escopic understanding of Christ and Christ's call for us um, in a diverse city like, like Toronto. Um, that Christian hospitality and um, peacemaking is a, here in a city like Toronto, you, you could not possibly summarize that in, in one statement. And um, if I'm speaking to a church of 200 people, they each have different vocations, different stations. You know, I have a, a, a kindergartner who's going to kindergarten with other little Muslim children. Like, what, is, what does it mean for, for him to love and play with his, his, um, his Muslim friend? as opposed to the high schooler, as opposed to the lawyer and the nurse. Christ's call is for each of them, the priesthood of all believers, that ministry of reconciliation. Um, it's not just the one Christian politician in the congregation that is called to be a pluralist. And there's not one way to do that. And so we need a more rich Christology. So yeah, thanks for bringing that up again. Yeah, I appreciate that. I was thinking about the issue of social cohesion as it surfaces within a modern state like Canada. It seems that the modern state considers it incumbent upon itself to foster a deeper sense of cohesion across diverse social values, but in different ways. So when you studied various European countries like France, Holland, or Germany, did you find that some put more emphasis on inculcating would-be citizens into a specific set of values that supersede other forms of attachment? And how much might state involvement pressure individuals more toward assimilation, accommodation, or integration in relation to a centralizing social identity? There are a number of uh, great books on this, but I would say that the history of church-state relations in these different European countries is really important because historically speaking, um, countries like France, England, and Germany have very unique modes of dealing with the church or churches. And um, historically speaking, they attempted to fold Muslims in sometimes into those modes and treat them like another denomination. And there are a lot of interesting results um, from those attempts. Um, so there's just a variety of examples. Um, when you're looking at France, that is, tends to be the most aggressive, secular, laicite approach towards um, Islam. There's a, a lovely and fun little book by a sociologist called Why the French Don't Like Headscarves. Oh, it's really fun. It's really fun. John Bowen. It's a great book. He, he, he does the history, the sociology, and then the contemporary in a really nice way. I would give you a, a great example there. But there are other attempts. Uh, Europeans have um, attempted to find or cultivate what they would call moderate Muslims, which is an extremely problematic term, but they would call them moderate Muslims, and um, try to establish essentially uh, liaison groups where you find you know, Muslims who are acceptable 
to the European elite, whereby they can they can speak and connect with community. And um, this has been this hasn't worked very well for a variety of reasons. But one of the biggest is that these people are chosen by Europeans, and they have very little cachet with the actual Muslims on the ground. Especially simply by being chosen, you you lose your your street cred. One way of a very simple way of understanding the difference between Europe and the United States on the issue of integration is, by and large, a, a, ver a core difference in political imagination, whereby um, Europeans tend to <laughs> tend to look to the state to solve the problem of Islam, or as they would see it, or to integrate Muslims. This it is it is the task of the state to build social cohesion through schools and, and things like this. That's, that's a core task of the state. Whereby in the United States, cohesion is built through the marketplace. So um, the state doesn't take responsibility for um, caring and, and, and educating um, immigrants, but it's actually through um, the economy. So if you're an immigrant and you come to the United States, you've got to get a job. And you've got to feed yourself, and so you have to learn the language, and you have to learn to to get along, and so it's it's a very harsh reality for immigrants in the United States. But by and large, Muslim immigrants in the United States are are better educated and um, wealthier, um, and are 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 flourishing, and that has a lot to do with the sorts of Muslim immigrants that are accepted into the United States. Um, the United States is very selective about who it about who it allows in, as opposed to um, European countries, which have brought in a lot of more blue-collar workers or uneducated or poorer classes from Morocco and Turkey and, and elsewhere. So it's a very complex discussion. But um, in terms of cohesion, that's a core difference. One looks to the state to build cohesion, and the other looks more to the economy. But there are fascinating things for me as an American reading that why why the French don't leave, why the French don't like headscarves. It was uh, French comments of um, when they encountered a headscarf on the street, they would say that her headscarf was very aggressive. And as an American, I I didn't know how to respond or understand that, but that that the difference itself was so disruptive that they encountered the headscarf as aggressive to them. And so there is there's a longing and an urgency for cohesion in a place like France. That's that's really um, critical. And and one last thing was um, I was speaking with a, a young student the other day. I don't want to embarrass him, but he he said, "Well, I I don't think Canada has a culture to to integrate into. Um, you know, uh, we're we're multicultural. We don't we don't have a culture." And this is a particularly complex and difficult thing um, to discuss, but um, um, an unawareness amongst Westerners of their own cultural context and their positioning makes it really difficult for immigrants when you say, I want you to integrate and become a part of our social cohesion, but we don't have a culture and we don't believe in anything, but be a part of us and be like us. And they ask, well, what do you believe in? You know, how do you become a part of that? 
Um, and so that's another really interesting aspect to the debate about immigration and integration. Do you think increasing religious diversity, along with increasing Muslim immigration, are causes of decreasing church attendance? Yeah, thank you. Um, so um, I am not a missiologist um, or a, a scholar of evangelism or church growth, um, but I can tell you a bit of what I, what I saw um, in Europe, and I will not, I've been very careful not to speak about Canada because I know just enough about Canada to get myself in trouble. So <laughs> not going to talk about Canada, but I'll tell you what I found in Europe. Uh, uh, as far as church growth and Muslim immigration. Um, the churches that are growing in Europe, there are a variety of different kinds of churches that are growing, um, but there are two in particular that I think are important to pay attention to. One, um, many of the largest and most vibrant churches in Europe are um, run by Africans, um, African immigrants. They're immigrant churches. Um, and the second kind of church that is growing are churches that were dying white churches that decided through some movement of the spirit to open themselves up to immigrant communities, refugee communities, and experienced a spiritual renewal through practices of what I'd call hospitality um, and allowed themselves to be open to uh, engaging with these new movements. And I met many pastors there who would say to me something like this. Um, it is much easier for me to speak with a Muslim immigrant about Jesus than it is to speak with a white, wealthy European about Jesus. They are much more open to the gospel, um, much more open to spiritual discussions, um, and many of them, you know, very evangelical pastors would say, I feel like I have much more in common with my Muslim neighbors than I do with my secular neighbors. So, uh, yeah, the question of why is the church in the West dying, why are white churches dying, is a very complex question. And I'm not, I'm not uh, qualified to give you a full answer, or, or could I right now, but I would say that um, if we're looking for points of hope, for the future of the church in the West, I think immigration has got to be huge, that it's, it's a profound opportunity. And so when I speak in Christian communities about Muslim immigration, questions are often framed as Muslim immigration as a challenge to the church or a problem to the church, a question to be answered, an issue to be resolved. And the, the pastors and missionaries that I met consider Muslim immigration to be the greatest opportunity for the future of the church in the West. So I would just turn that around. How do you think Muslims experience the move to the West? Uh, uh, great question. Um, I'm very hesitant to answer it because I would be speaking for Muslims, and I'm not. And also because Islam is a global religion, so it's very diverse. And so I'm very confident that if I were to spend time in Toronto, I could find Muslims who were very grateful for Canada, and very happy and felt very welcomed, and I could find Muslims that were pretty angry about how they're treated. So I, I, I can see sort of a, a wide range in terms of how Muslims feel about their presence here. Um, I can also tell you Shadi Hamid, who's a dear friend of mine, he, he's a really nice guy, he endorsed the book. 
He's a, a Muslim political theorist in Washington, D.C., and he works at the Brookings Institution. He wrote, he wrote a great book um, called Islamic Exceptionalism. It's a great book. But he would, say, uh, he would say that the United States of America is the best place to be a Muslim in the whole world. So, so I'm, what I'm trying to do is just kind of show you the range of responses to what it means to be a Muslim in America. I could find you Muslims who find it to be a horrible place, but I could also find you Muslims who consider it to be the place where Muslims have the freedom to speak, the freedom to write, the freedom to um, talk about the evils of Assad without fear of reprisal, who have you know, the freedom to um, criticize Saudi um, and organize around that and march freely. And so they're grateful for it. Um, but other Muslims who are protesting Islamophobia, who are fighting for Muslim rights in the United States and who are greatly terrified by the rise of white nationalism within the United States and the ways in which Donald Trump perpetuates that through the Muslim ban and a variety of other things. So I, all I'm trying to say is it's a very complex you know, response to how Muslims are experiencing, um, are experiencing the West as, as they come here. Um, so, but yeah, thank you. You should you should invite a Muslim here to answer that question. <laughs> Considering the proliferation of identities that's happening, how are Muslims from very different cultural contexts currently reckoning with pluralism? Yeah, well, I would I would point you to Shadi Hamid as an expert in Middle Eastern democracy, and specifically, he's done a lot of wonderful work on. Um, the Arab Spring and what we're seeing now throughout the Middle East and North Africa. Um, but there are a variety of really fascinating experiments going on um, in different Muslim countries um, because of the Arab Spring. And Indonesia um, is another just example on the other side of the world uh, in which um, a Muslim form of pluralism is um, developing in you know fits and starts. Um, but that's another really fact. I have a, a friend who's a, a Christian theologian and ethicist uh, from the Reformed tradition. He's an Indonesian citizen, and he's actually writing a chapter for me right now on Reformed theologies of pluralism in conversation with indigenous Indonesian understandings of pluralism. It's quite fascinating. Um, so it really is an interesting time to be alive to study um, Islamic political development. Um, and then, of course, you have Muslims in the West who are reflecting on this as well in really interesting ways. And a counterpart to this book is a book by um, a Muslim scholar at the University of Edinburgh. Her name is Mona Siddiqui, originally from Pakistan. She wrote a book called Islam and Hospitality. It's in dialogue with Christian theologies of hospitality. And um, she has some really interesting things to say about political pluralism in Islam. And so there are a variety of diverse voices wrestling with this in the Muslim world and within the West. You know, as we talk about this globalization of difference, every religion, every ideology is having to wrestle with this. You know, we can put the, the whole concept of religion to the side and just look at communist China and what they are wrestling with in terms of the Uyghur population and Muslim minorities. We have just this massive um, imprisonment of Muslim citizens um, in Western China, Uyghur citizens, that's going on. And this is 
uh, a communist society trying to wrestle with pluralism within its own borders. And so Muslims are having this conversation, communists are having this conversation, Christians are having this conversation. We're all kind of wrestling with these sort of resources of how do we live with this deep difference. I have a question about a distinction you drew earlier between the right and the left in their responses to immigration. I especially wonder about your characterization of responses from the left as, on the one hand, very open and motivated by tolerance, and on the other, as patronizing. But tolerance seems to be a more passive stance, whereas patronization seems to require more overt action. How do those two sides work together as a characterization of the left? This is where Kuiper is helpful in that one of his insights into how liberal modernity works, uh, sort of core danger of it, is that it doesn't recognize its own faith commitments, and it doesn't recognize that it has a mission in the world. Liberal modernity has a sense of mission. Um, And we can see it when we see the more paternalistic side of the way in which it responds to Muslim immigrants. Um, and uh, Hector, to ask you to tell your story, I think you do a better job of explaining. Um, I mean, it really beautifully illustrates what's, what's going on there. But um, those, a liberal can say those two things at once and can often not notice the conflict between them. That I'm, I'm tolerant, I'm multicultural, I want to let you be your, your own sort of quaint culture and your quaint religion, but I also really want to, I want to help you see the light of what a free individual, you know, autonomous individual you could be. Just, um, this is a story that came out of the, the research project that we did with, with CCBR, and um, just a, a bit of context, we were able to interview um, all kind of layers of service providers or in terms of um, a settlement, but also all levels of proximity to the refugees, people that work with them directly, people that advocated for them, etc. And one of the groups that we were able to, um, to interview refugees from the first round of Syrian uh, crisis, kind of immigration here in 2016. And um, within that group, there was... Um, there was a woman who had come here with her um, husband and two young children, and she had been sponsored by a group in uh, in St. Catherine. So uh, they were all women, the sponsors, and um, she wore a headscarf, and and she was. We were going through kind of the whole process of. Um, how do you how do you find the integration process? Is it, is it okay? Yes or not? What um, what have been your experience so far with your sponsors? And she was extremely grateful and and very kind and very eloquent. And um, she um, right by the end of the interview, she said, "Well, there is something." And and I I said, "You know, don't worry. If you want, we don't record this. Like, what? Tell me your story." And her response was, doesn't matter what I do or what I say, my sponsors will always see me as someone who's oppressed. And I, I asked her, like, what was, what, what was kind of 
what drove her to say that? And she said, you know, the headscarf is the first point of it. It doesn't matter how much I articulate it. They will always find a way of kind of finding a, uh, an archaeological, a genealogical answer to is not her oppressed here in this moment, but historically oppressed that make, makes her wear that. And she was aware of all these dynamics. And there was, she said there is, there is another com- complexifying element of it. My, my marriage was an arranged marriage, and they knew it because of the, the sponsorship process. And um, the, the true story about my marriage is that I, I arranged it. I, I was a teacher. I was a professional. I decided that um, I wanted to have children and, and didn't want to date. Uh, and I asked my parents to set me up with someone, and and I found my husband, and we have children now, and um, and and she kept saying to me that uh, for her um, it was impossible to communicate what what her situation was to her sponsors, and that they intellectually would somehow understand what she was going through there was an emotional level in which they will think that they are helping, that they are tolerant and neutral and try to understand the situation. They are also helping. At some point, she will be liberated and she will understand the oppression she's going through. Um, and, and she said to me, that is the, the only downside of, of what, what my sponsorship process has been in comparison to other families that have been sponsored by faith groups than have an easier time conveying that message. Yeah, and that interesting little turn at the end there, and this is a very difficult point to make, but that an evangelical group who is hosting this woman, there is a chance that an evangelical group will be able to empathize and sympathize more with that sense than a modern liberal. It's a very difficult sort of nuanced point to make, but... That, that can actually, there, there's sort of examples of these sort of unique coalitions that are happening. Christian hospitality seems to be unavoidably a Western discourse where non-white immigrants are always placed in the position of being hosted. So do you think legitimate moral agency, or being hosts, is possible for non-white immigrants within the Christian hospitality discussion? Uh, if there are... Um, virtues that the Western white church struggles with, hospitality has got to be on the top of the list. So um, living within sort of the autonomous individualism of the West, um, uh, deep hospitality is a, is, a, is a practice that we have in many ways forgotten. And, um, and so immigrant churches... Um, offer an op- a profound opportunity to teach and show what that looks like in a really profound way. Um, and so non-Western cultures coming into the West have something profoundly important to speak to about that. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you one example. I met a young, uh, a young church planter in Amsterdam, and um, he told me the story about how he... Um, graduated from there, and he wanted to plant a church in western Amsterdam, which is a very diverse neighborhood, predominantly. Uh, this is the new west side of Amsterdam, very um, heavily Muslim population. And he went in guns blazing, like church planters do, you know, like a lot of excitement. I'm going to 
I'm going to plant a church in this neighborhood, and it's going to be multicultural, and it's going to be wonderful, and I'm going to convert people to Christianity. And, and he had this um, plan that he was going to host meals, and he would invite people to come. And no one was coming to his meals. So this is a neighborhood with like Suriname, uh, Ethiopia, Indonesia, Turkey, Morocco. Um, and uh, this white Dutchman was failing to get people to come to his home. And um, he was beginning to become depressed and down, feeling like a failure. And, and uh, one night as he was walking down the hallway, his apartment, he smelled a really wonderful smell. And it was his neighbor from Ethiopia, and she was cooking. And he was invited in to become a guest. And over the meal, she was given the opportunity to tell the story of this dish that she had made and talk about her mother who taught her how to make that dish, talk about her grandmother and her, her life back in Ethiopia and just share her story and her culture. And, and his understanding of ministry in that neighborhood shifted whereby he learned to become the guest in the neighborhood. And he learned to be, become the person who didn't have the answers, but the person who had the questions and who had space and time to listen. And his, um, his sense of ministry was just becoming a guest <coughs> and allowing other people to become hosts. So little by little, they arranged meals whereby um, person down the hallway from Turkey would host a meal and share their story and the person from Suriname and the person from Egypt and um, they began this meal tradition whereby the immigrant was the host and the native was the guest and a new church was born out of this um, it's called uh, Oasa oh, it's Dutch for Oasis um, and that's um, an example of a Western Christian learning hospitality and learning to be a guest from that sort of underside. Hospitality has something to do with ownership. You have to have something to give or a house to welcome people into and so on. So first, what do you think is the relationship between hospitality and ownership, especially in regard to the paternalism you brought up earlier? And second, do you see differences between notions of hospitality at play in Europe and in the U.S.? Um, so you are absolutely correct that ownership is critical to hospitality. <clears throat> um, and without ownership, one cannot engage in hospitality. It's a Hospitality at its core is a space-making endeavor. So there's a, there's a power and sovereignty is happening. When you are creating space, when I am setting the table... I'm claiming this table as my own, and I'm arranging it in the way that I see fit. So I'm taking ownership of that table, I'm making that space, and I'm inviting you into it. So concepts of sovereignty and ownership are absolutely critical. Um, yes. What I would say um, as well, if I'm hearing you correctly, I would, I would say that that's a good thing. And hospitality as I said at the very beginning um, a wonderful host oh, uh, you know if I invite you to my home if it's my intention that you are going to be perpetually guest and I will never be a guest for you that's a 
poor understanding of hospitality. Um, the end of hospitality is, is that of, of good hospitality is that of mutuality. A good host intends to um, build a relationship whereby we can um, actually have a, a mutual relationship where at times I will be a guest in your home and I will want you to have agency and space and sovereignty whereby you can welcome others. Um, and this is what's dangerous about what's happening in Europe. We were just talking about um, the ways in which some welfare systems create a situation in which people are perpetually the guest, perpetually in need of government support um, in a sort of paternalistic relationship whereby they never get to be the host. Um, they are not treated as agents. Uh, they are treated as patients. My argument is that Christian hospitality, the hospitality that God shows us, is um, well, the book of Galatians would talk about us. We're, we're no longer slaves, but sons. There's a, a shift to agency. But the hospitality that God shows us uh, gives us agency. The hospitality that God shows us has an ethical implication that we show hospitality to others and that we show a kind of hospitality to others that frees them as well. So it's a freeing act of hospitality as opposed to a paternalistic and oppressive form of hospitality. So that means uh, ownership is going to be a really important part of creating agency. Um, we had a, a next-door neighbor from Somalia um, when we were living in Seattle, and her husband was a, a long-haul trucker. And she had two little girls at home. Um, and um, they were renting a small apartment next to ours. And what I would say is what little she had, she brought to us and would share it with us. So what's, what's profound is the, the practices of hospitality in some of these countries are so profound and so powerful that what little they have, they will, they will share. And it was good. Um, but it's, it's a critical part um, for them of, of being human, the honor of being able to be a host and not perpetually be a patient. Um, and as I was talking about that church planter, right, for that Ethiopian woman, what was so powerful for her <clears throat> was that here is a white Dutchman coming into her home who's not a social worker, right? He's not there to integrate her. He's not there to teach her. He's not there to empower her or liberate her. He is the guest. He has questions. He's learning. And what was powerful for her and what kept her coming back and interacting was he treated her like an agent. And so what little she had, um, she could give. Now, um, in terms of the, the, the problem of poverty, you know, that's a, that's a whole other discussion of how does economic development happen and um, how, um, how do people become um, economically empowered. I live in Houston, Texas, and um, we have a large, um, we have a large uh, Pakistani population. And my friend does work with um, diaspora ministries in the city. Houston is, one of, is now the most diverse city in America. We um, have more nations and uh, um, ethnicities represented than any other. Uh, but he, he encountered this white Christian church that wanted to reach out to the Pakistani population. 
and their idea was like to you know have a have a, a food drive for them we'd like to have uh you know a clothing drive for them we'd we'd like to to help them and he had to tell them that actually in Houston the average income of a, a Pakistani family is around $170,000 a year you're making good money you know and so um i would say that um Um, you just have to have a, lar- a larger discussion about how immigrants flourish and what kinds of economies do immigrants truly flourish. And it is interesting that the poverty rate for immigrants in Sweden, like we were discussing, compared to a city like Houston, immigrants are really economically flourishing in Houston. And so <clears throat> what, what are economies that um, that give immigrants opportunities to be agents as opposed to patients of the state. Yeah. Keeping the colonial history of oppression in the U.S. and Canada in mind, what should the role of government be with regard to creating the structural conditions for a diversity of forms of cultural hospitality? I think this is where um, protecting indigenous institutions and indigenous schools and allowing them their own communities to empower themselves as opposed to the government directly working with individuals is a really important thing. Um, so allowing for um, there not being one way to empower immigrants in the United States, but 10,000 ways, um, sort of a complexity of like um, empowering Taiwanese immigrants in San Francisco is going to look different from empowering Latino immigrants in Phoenix, as opposed to Moroccan immigrants in New Jersey. I think one of the important things is is allowing for that diversity and um, freedom of association to flourish, as opposed to a sort of one-size-fits-all, direct government to individual. So this this is the hard news, is that the state can't do it. The state's just not capable. Of, of doing that in a culturally sensitive way, uh, the complexity of what globalization is. Um, and um, so I would just push it much more towards civil society and away from the state directly working with individuals because it's, it's clumsy, culturally speaking, because the challenges are so diverse. Right? A, a Latino immigrant coming into Phoenix as opposed to a Taiwanese, as opposed to a Moroccan, they're, they're unique. And um, a young white social worker is going to need to understand the, that kind of diversity. So I would just push it more towards civil society myself. But what's important to say is I'm a theologian. I'm not a public policy expert. And so um, I want to try to um, provide some theological frameworks for thinking about these things, but also not over-prescribe these things because I believe that there are thoughtful Christian public policy experts who understand nuances and who need to be engaging in those kinds of things. So I often get questions like, how many, how many refugees should America let in? Should it be 100,000? Should it be 10,000? Well, I'm a theologian. So my task is to tell you about the, the hospitality of God and to tell you about what God has done for you and to talk about God's world, and then to ask you, 
What implications might you think that have for um, how you respond to Donald Trump's Muslim ban? What do you think this hospitable God is asking of you? Uh, you are a member of the priesthood of all believers. What do you think? And sort of engage in that kind of conversation. So what you're asking is a really hard question. I don't really know. <laughs> Hospitality can often get in the way of encounter rather than open it up since it operates as a two-sided relation. Would it be helpful to look for or uplift more the role of third spaces and to consider how God might operate in a third space kind of way and in third spaces themselves? Um, I, I think that is a tremendous point. And one of my favorite books is this book, uh, The Great Good Place. Have you heard of this no. book? So you would love this book. It's, it's all about um, the role of third spaces, right. uh, cafes, pubs, um, beer halls in Germany, tea houses in Japan. Yeah, um, yeah the French cafe, the salon, um, and the role that it plays in human community and human flourishing. Right. The Great Good Place. It's okay. a wonderful book. And as a native of Seattle, Washington, uh, the coffee house, you know, yeah. the idea of God as a barista, you know, yeah. that's, that's very easy for me to sort of <laughs> project my Seattleness onto God as I like that. Yeah. So I know, I think you're absolutely right that third spaces, um, are critical to this. What concerns me is the death of the third place, yeah. Yeah. that it's not as much an option um, for us and the death of it as a place where diverse communities come together because um, third places themselves are becoming uh, segregated. Yeah. So I went to this hipster little brunch place in Am Hamilton this morning and it was full of you know white people, white hipsters and it was really good. But, <laughs> but um, you know third spaces can be you know the the Egyptian, you know, shish, you know, yeah. place is is not a place where I'm expected to show up, and right. so um, yeah. even third spaces themselves become racialized and classless, and so, yeah. uh, but it's critically important and needs to be revived. Mm -hmm. um, but as we become more and more individualistic, as we retreat into our homes, into our online, mm -hmm. you know, curated spaces. Um, Third places become harder to harder to find. That's it for our show this week. If you want to find out more about Dr. Kaming's work, you can visit his website at www. MatthewKamink.com. You can also read his book, Christian Hospitality and Muslim Immigration in an Age of Fear. It's published by Eerdmans and is available through many online booksellers. If you'd like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can visit us at icscanada.edu. If anything from this week's show piqued your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith at icscanada.edu. You can also find us on Twitter. You can follow me as at Beware the Yeti. You can follow Hector as at AceroF underscore Hector. You can follow Dr. K. Mink as at Matthew K. Mink. And you can follow ICS as at INSCHR. 
And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, follow along with us on Spotify, or find us on your podcast app of choice. Remember, following and reviewing the podcast helps people find us and keeps us on their radar. Most importantly, tell your friends.